I'm from uh, New Life Student Ministry, and uh, if you would please listen along as I read Colossians 1, 3-8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you've heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Ephesus, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Thank you. Amen. You can have a seat. And may God add his rich blessing to the reading of his word. That was Noah Adkinson, by the way one of our uh, young men in our student ministries. We are beginning a 50-day spiritual journey together today. 50 days, seven weeks, three commitments, one goal. To give Jesus the preeminent place in our hearts and in our lives. Amen? Jesus first. Jesus first in our affections, in our aspirations, in our delights and desires. Jesus first in our hearts and in our homes. Jesus first in our work life and at play. Jesus first in our schedules and pocketbooks. Jesus our first thought in the morning. Not fitting Jesus in around our other priorities, but Jesus as our supreme priority in all of life. Jesus first, wrapping our lives around him. Now, you need to know, I don't really have an angle in doing this. I'm not saying that if you put Jesus first in your life, that he'll make you rich and wealthy and healthy and happy and fix all your problems. He may choose to do those things for you. I hope he does. It's his prerogative. He's the Lord. But in my mind, that's not the motivation of this or the goal. The goal is simply to allow King Jesus to take his rightful place in our hearts and in our lives. He is the king. He is supreme. Having said that, though, if you do make strides in giving Jesus first place in your life, I believe you'll be putting yourself in a position to hear his voice more clearly speaking to you, hearing his call to you in your life. It wouldn't surprise me one bit if some new ministries were started coming out of these 50 days or if some new ministers were raised up and called into his service. It would not surprise me one bit. May the Lord raise up many new faithful ministers in this body. Well, even if today is the first day you've heard about this, and you're here saying, what, 50 days, what's that all about? It's okay, it's not too late. It starts today. You can jump in. There are three main commitments, as I said, involved in in participating in this. And the first one you can check off, because it's being here right now, prioritizing weekend worship together as we walk our way through the first couple of chapters of the New Testament book of Colossians, you'll benefit most from that by being here in the flesh. The second is to participate in a 50 days small group. And that's really the key piece of this emphasis. And I'll come back to it in a moment. And third, renewing your mind every day by playing a portion of this CD. Now, you guys went crazy on me last week. You purchased all the ones that we had, so we had to go out and order more, which we did. We picked up a couple of hundred more. So you can go out to the 50 days table, and for $1 donation, 
It says connecting with God. And what we're going to ask you to do is pop this in every day, maybe on your way to work or school, in your quiet time in the morning with the Lord, or at night before you go to bed, and just listen to a portion of the truth that is on this CD. Many of you have started doing that already, and you've many of you have told me already what a blessing this has been to your life. You know, your day just goes better when you start off with God's Word, filling your mind, renewing your mind. So that's the third commitment. Amen, I guess. <laughs> Bless you. Okay. Becoming part of a, a New Life uh, 50 Days small group. Let me say a couple things about that. Actually, we are excited that 14 new groups have formed just for this 50-day emphasis. We're very serious about all of us getting involved and participating in a 50-day small group. Uh, the leaders of those new groups are being trained right now with Pastor Jay. Um, I think in room 206, 207. We've also had some groups multiply for this emphasis in order to make room for more people to be a part of this. So if you're in a New Life small group already, we ask you to go these next seven weeks. If you've been invited by someone who's forming a new group, we encourage you to say yes and be a part of that. As I said last week, if you get to the end of the seven weeks and you just hate it, I mean, it was just horrible, and you hate all those people, just say, I'm done, and, and that'll be fine, Okay. Now, we're hoping some will continue on, but maybe not. And I want to say this. We're so serious about you getting in a small group for these seven weeks that we're doing something else. Perhaps you've come today and you're you're not in a small group. Well, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night this week, you can just come. You can just show up in the prayer chapel at 7 o'clock, any of those four nights, and depending on who and how many people are there, Pastor Jay will meet with you and he'll actually form on the spot a small group out of the people who come any of those nights. We'll be walking through the first session of this together, okay? Any of those nights. So figure out which one's best for you and just show up. Park back here. You can come through the outside entrance into the prayer chapel at 7 o'clock and you can be involved in a 50 days small group. I'm also making a few more commitments for those of you We're going to go deeper with this, okay, and take it deeper. Every week we're going to have a memory verse together that we're going to study, God's Word. And we've we've created a little keychain. We put all these memory verses on the keychain. You can pick those up at the 50 days table as well. They're free. Just take one, and they'll have on there the verse from each week, adding one each week as we go through. So I have one here with today's memory verse on it, Colossians 1, 3. And we'll say those together a couple times in service so that we can begin the process of committing God's words uh, to our minds. We're also including on the back side of your study outline each Sunday a family discussion guide. Just two, three, four questions based on what we talked about in service that you can, you know, in the car on the way home with your kids or around the dinner table or maybe during a family devotions time during the week just to help you process and go deeper with what we've talked about on Sunday morning. That's a pretty cool idea, I think. And I hope that you'll use it and get your get your kids involved in learning to put Jesus first in their lives. So we'll try to boil it down each week to one uh, one thing to focus on. And we're going to put all this on our Facebook page and on our website so that if you miss for some reason, you can go there and you'll also be able to post your comments and just share how God is changing you as you seek to put Jesus first in your life. Okay? So here we go. Last weekend, we introduced the series by looking at the The welcome and the opening greeting of the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. There's also uh, the scripture that Noah read on your study guide this morning. And and today, I'm excited because we start to get into the meat of what this book is all about. 
Let's uh, say verse 3 together as our memory verse for the day. Let's say it a couple of times, okay? Out loud. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. We're going to start out simple. Let's do it again. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So that's a great prompt to pray for people and to thank God for them. When I studied this passage this week, I see it kind of breaking down into four main things. First thing I see is Paul thanking God for the Colossian believers in his prayers. And then we see that Paul is encouraged to hear about their faith and their love and their hope. Faith, hope, and love. And then we see Paul declaring that the gospel is like a seed, S-E-E-D, a seed that is growing and producing fruit, both in the Colossian Christians that he was writing to, as well as people all around the world. And then Paul recognizes Epaphras as the faithful minister who taught the gospel to those people and who reported back on their spiritual growth. Epaphras. Would you name your son Epaphras? His parents did, so we'll just live with that. I've titled the message today, The Gospel Truth. The gospel truth. Have you ever heard anybody use that phrase? I'm telling you the truth. It's the gospel truth. And isn't it interesting that, that in everyday conversation, we would hear people use the gospel as the standard and measure of truth. Maybe unwittingly, but that's what they're saying. And if there is a primary theme in this opening paragraph of Colossians, it is that. It is the true gospel. You might want to circle the words in verse 5. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. Each week I'm going to give you a a principle. We'll call it a preeminence principle, okay? To kind of help you flesh out what it means to put Jesus first. Here's today's. Putting Jesus first involves continually learning and believing his gospel. Which begs the question, what is the gospel? What is it? Let me sum it up for you in in, in a phrase. The gospel is the good news that God has solved humanity's biggest problem. That's the gospel. God has solved humanity's biggest problem, our alienation from our holy creator due to our sin, and he did it through Jesus Christ. That's good news. Let me expand on it a little bit. Reconciliation with God has been provided through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Amen? By which God's holy wrath against sin was completely satisfied and his perfect righteousness graciously made available as a gift to all who believe. The gospel contains the guarantee of eternal life for all who repent and believe its message and the promise that King Jesus will ultimately reign over a new humanity and a renewed creation. The gospel contains that glorious promise. The Apostle Paul opens his letter to the Colossians by laying out several truths about this gospel message. And this morning I want us to learn six truths about the gospel from this passage. Number one, the gospel is true. Say that with me. The gospel is true. Verses 5 and 6. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, 
the gospel which has come to you. Notice that Paul calls the gospel the word or the message of truth. Now last week we mentioned that Paul's readers lived in a city, the city of what? Colossae, a large metropolitan city, which would be found in modern day Turkey. So over on the other side of the world. Because Colossae was a commercial hub in its day with thousands of people traveling in and out of that city, it had become a very pluralistic town. And what I mean by that is many different philosophies of life were floating around that city vying for supremacy. And we're going to learn about some of those in future weeks. But into that swirling mass of competing ideas and beliefs, Paul interjects the controversial notion that truth actually exists. That there is absolute truth, or what Francis Schaeffer used to call true truth, that's true for everybody. Paul states without embarrassment that contrary to popular belief, there is something solid and firm for people to build their lives on and to believe in. There is truth, the word of truth, the gospel. Now, I was thinking about this. We, too, live in a very pluralistic city, not Colossae, but Columbus, Ohio. Now, we're very united around college football. There's not a lot of disagreement about that. But when it comes to philosophies of life and belief systems, there are a lot of different people who believe a lot of different things here in our city. In a culture like ours, there's this underlying presupposition that truth is relative, Truth is whatever you make it. Maybe you've heard someone say, well, you got your truth, you got your beliefs, and I got mine, and if your beliefs make you happy and they're working for you, then then I'm happy for you. But don't bother trying to convert me to your way of thinking because I've got my own truth, just like you have your truth. But the pertinent question is, what if that's not true? What if there actually is universal absolute truth that is true for everyone and beliefs that are contrary to that or don't line up with that are actually false beliefs. Some of you perhaps are here at New Life for the first time today or maybe you've been coming for just a few weeks or months and you need to know that New Life is a church that unashamedly believes in truth. That there is solid truth to believe in and to build your life upon. We believe that the Bible is the source of knowing the truth. It is God's holy word. We believe that. Inerrant, inspired, God-breathed, the Bible, the word of God. Jesus said, thy word is truth. And the main message of the Bible is the gospel, gospel truth. So we believe, like Paul did, that the gospel of Jesus is true. It's true historically and it's true experientially. It is solid as a rock. You can build your life upon it like the old hymn says. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. The gospel is true. And because it's true, number two, it needs to be told. It needs to be proclaimed and heard. The Colossians, Paul reminds them, heard the gospel. Verse 5 and 6, of this you have heard before, this gospel you've heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. Gospel is the word. Now, what does the word gospel mean? What does it mean? Good news, that's right. The original word in the Greek 
to tell good news was euangelion. Would you say that? Euangelion. You're going to learn a couple of Greek words this morning. Euangelion. And that sounds a little bit like our word evangelize. That's where we get it. To tell good news. That word was often used to describe a declaration of victory in a military campaign. Now, back then in that world, in the ancient Greek world, it was divided up into city-states. And these city-states would, you know, as is prone for humans, they would go to war with each other. They would erupt in battles. And, of course, the men of the city would go out and fight the battles, and the women and children would stay behind in the city, anxiously awaiting word of the outcome of the battle. Of course, in those days, there was no CNN, no satellite TV, no cell phones. Hey, honey, I'm here on the front lines, and we're getting our rear ends kicked. I mean, that the technology wasn't there. There wasn't even telegraphs. What they would do to get word back to the, the people at home, the townspeople, was to use messengers, usually a young man who could run like the wind. And so when the outcome of the battle seemed to be clear, he would be ordered to take off from the battlefield and sprint, back up the pathway to the city, bearing the news to the townspeople that would really determine their their fate. Sometimes the news wasn't good. We're getting creamed. And the townspeople's hearts would sink into despair because they knew that defeat meant that they would probably end up either enslaved or killed. But if the army had won a decisive victory, one in which the enemy could not rise up again, the messenger would come running back to the city and he would evangelize the people. He would tell them the good news. And do you know how he did it? This is really cool. As he would sprint up over the rise and he would see the city gates in the distance and the people gathered there at the city gates awaiting word, he would stop and catch his breath. And if the army had won, he would yell out one word. Tetelestai! We translate that word, it is finished. The battle is won. We've won! We're winners! And what do you think the people would do when they heard that word, tetelestai? They would clap and leap for joy and dance and give high fives and hug each other. We won! We won! We won! Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross just before he gave up the ghost and expired, shouted out, not a cry of despair and defeat, a victory shout, Tetelestai, it is finished. He has won the victory for his people. And we can shout and dance for joy because we are winners. The enemy has been defeated. I and my people are victorious forever. There is no better news than that. And that's news that begs to be told to be proclaimed, to be declared. The good news that on the cross and through the empty tomb, Jesus has won the victory for his people. Thank God for that. That's the gospel. Listen, the gospel is good news. What do you do with news? How do you respond to hearing news? You just believe it and live in its reality, right? You don't have to do anything. You just say, we're winners. (laughs) Praise God. And live in the reality of that truth. That's the message that people need to hear. Third, the gospel is intended to be spread all over the world. Again, Paul's writing, verse 5 and 6, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and growing. 
So the gospel message is true and it's for the whole world. Everyone needs to hear it. The message of Christ's victory won on the cross and the empty tomb is a message that everybody needs to hear. That's why we take teams to Uganda every year and Costa Rica every year. That's why we support missionaries in China and Cambodia and India and in the Muslim world. That's why we plant churches in Clintonville and Westerville and the Short North and the OSU campus. The gospel is for everyone, red and yellow, black and white, rich and poor, male and female, young and old, Democrat and Republican, liberal and conservative, rebels and religious people, younger brother types and older brother types, proud people, Pharisees, and prodigals. Listen, one of the reasons, one of the reasons God has you where you are these days, where you work or where you go to school, one of the reasons God has you there is so that you can share the gospel with the people around you. As God opens doors of conversation, you know what I'm talking about, right? Spiritual conversations with people. As God opens up those doors, that you walk through it because you're a carrier now of the message of Jesus Christ, the good news. You know the good news. It's in you. Its life is in you. And God will work. He wants the message to get out more than you do and more than I do. And if you're alert and if you have your antenna up and if you're praying, God will open up conversations. And that's one of the reasons why he has you where you're at, at your office or your plant or your campus or your neighborhood. It's to be a beacon of light sharing the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, a fourth gospel truth. The gospel bears fruit in those who hear and understand it. This is interesting. Paul writes, The gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it. Very interesting. So now it's time for the object lesson of the day. The gospel is bearing fruit and growing in the whole world and in you. You know what that tells me? That tells me that the gospel message is like a seed a seed that gets planted in people's hearts. Now, Jesus talked a lot about this, didn't he? Seeds and plants and fruit and trees and that sort of thing. And he said people's hearts are like the soil of the ground. Remember that? There's a farmer out sowing seed, and some people's hearts are hard and stony, and the seed just kind of bounces off. Other people's hearts are like the thorny ground, and the other cares of the world grow up and choke out the seed. But some people's hearts are soft. And the seed can embed itself in their hearts and begin to put down roots and eventually grow up through the soil and bear luscious, delicious fruit. Fruit that will be visible to other people and will be a blessing to them, will nourish them. Fruit, like fruit. Like this fruit right here. How many of you like fruit? We're into smoothies lately in our house, so we're pouring fruits into blenders, you know, whatever we can find around the house, we just throw in there and throw some yogurt in there and some protein mix and good stuff. I like fruit. 
This is a lemon. Um, when I was at my parents' house about a month ago in California, my dad has a lemon tree out in his backyard. A lemon tree. With like, there's like a hundred lemons on it. And I'm thinking, Dad, what do you do with a hundred lemons? You know, I mean, make lemonade. He did say that. And then give the rest away to the neighbors, I guess, so they can use it. And I just thought that was interesting. But you know what? When I was in high school, my science teacher actually held up fruit one day. And he said, you know what fruit is, really? Fruit is nothing more than excess life. Are you a science teacher? (laughs) Amen. Fruit is excess life. Think about that. The seed that it comes from contains in itself a dynamic life force that when it finds the right kinds of conditions existing, the right kind of soil, that life force first pushes roots down into the soil and then begins to push that life up through the trunk, through the branches, through the vine, and eventually it pushes its way out into fruit. Fruit is simply excess life, the overflow of life. And Paul said the gospel is bearing fruit. This is very interesting. What is the fruit of the gospel seed? What does the gospel produce in a soft heart that envelops it and embraces it? What form does this excess life take in the lives of believers who believe the gospel? Well, we know the Bible talks a lot about fruit, doesn't it? It talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith. Remember those? That's fruit. That's an assortment of fruit right there. Last weekend we talked about peace with God being a fruit of the gospel. But here and elsewhere in Paul's writings, Paul alludes to three particular kinds of gospel fruit that will be present in a congregation of believers who really embrace and get the gospel at a deep level. I want you to see this. Look back at verse 3 of chapter 1. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith, your faith, would you circle that? Your faith in Christ Jesus and of the Love that you have for all the saints, circle the word love, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, you can circle the word hope, faith, love, and hope. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing. You know what that tells me? Faith, hope, and love are the fruit of the gospel. Now we know, we've heard these terms before, faith, hope, and love, they're the the triad of virtues. It's interesting, Paul talked a lot about them. He said that faith, hope, and love are really the evidence that will appear in the life of someone who's a genuine Christian, a genuinely saved person, will have faith, hope, and love emerging in some measure in their lives. He also felt that these were the the measurements of success for a church. When you read Paul's writings, and and he, he wrote to churches, he never really commented on things like attendance, how nice their buildings were, you know, how many parking spaces they had, what the offerings were, but he talked a lot about faith, hope, and love. A lot. These are actually the fruit of the gospel. What I mean by this is this. The gospel carries within itself the power to produce the faith to even believe it. The gospel seed carries within itself the power to produce love for other believers. And the gospel carries within itself the power to produce hope, that strong assurance of heaven. 
Now, this is a new learning for me as a pastor, but I, I believe it now because I've seen it, I've experienced, I see it in the Word of God. Listen, faith, hope, and love arise in our hearts not primarily as a result of being told to have faith, hope, and love, but as a result of believing the gospel of Jesus Christ on ever deeper levels. This is revolutionary. I used to think that if I just told you, have faith, be hopeful, love people, that if I just said that, that you would be motivated to do those things. And that if you weren't, I just needed to say it louder. Faith, hope, love. Or give you more reasons, 25 more reasons for having faith, hope, and love. And have our other teachers and pastors say the same thing to you. I don't really believe that anymore. We still need to be instructed in having faith, hope, and love. But that needs to be surrounded and saturated with gospel truth. Because faith, hope, and love are the fruit of the gospel. This is like new for me. (laughs) Does this make sense? Excess life. Whoa. Excess life flowing out of you. Illustrations in our church body are numerous. I think of the man in our church who wrote me an email and said, I have been hearing you preach the gospel to us now for two years, and I want you to know that my heart is on fire to serve and love Jesus. He wrote and said, I want to take Bible classes. I want to serve in a ministry. I want to go on a missions trip. And I want to do all these things, not because I'm being guilted into it, but because I want to. Fruit. Excess life. I think of the woman who sat in my office this week with tears streaming down her face saying, Pastor Steve, I just want to go serve orphans. It's in me. God's put this in me. I, I gotta go serve. I gotta go love. I've got to do this. She gets what Jesus has done for her. And she wants to. She wants to. You see, when it's fruit, it's different. It's not motivated by guilt or fear or even duty. It's excess life leaking out. When it's fruit, you don't have to be pushed or cajoled into doing something. You can't not do it because of Jesus Christ in you, His life in you. When it's fruit, you don't go at it for 50 days and then conk out. The engine of grace in you keeps churning out horsepower and you make tracks for Jesus for a lifetime. How's that for mixing metaphors? Fruit and horsepower. Yeah, they all go together. I like what Pastor Tullian says. Any engine, listen, smaller than the gospel used to try to get Christians to obey will eventually conk out. He's right. Some of you have conked out in your life. The guilt wore off. The fear wore off. You need something bigger than that, larger than that. Paul said, in effect, to the Colossians, I thank God for the gospel fruit I hear about in your lives. Faith, hope, and love. It's evidence that you're genuinely born again. You've heard me say these things often, but I'm going to say them again. The gospel is not just for non-Christians. It's for Christians too. Christians need to hear the gospel as much as non-Christians do. 
The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just one class among many that you'll take during your life as a Christian. The gospel is the whole building that all the classes are contained in. Don't ever graduate from the gospel and move beyond it. Instead, grow deeper into it. The gospel has the power to grow inside of you and produce fruit that will mark you as a true believer in Jesus Christ and transform you into one of those crazy, all-in disciples of Jesus. And you'll begin to wrap your life around his life, like we sang earlier. All right, so let's review. Number one, the gospel is what? True. Number two, the gospel is a message to be proclaimed and heard. Number three, the gospel is intended to be spread all over the world. And number four, the gospel bears fruit. Now, a fifth gospel truth, one that we touched on last week. Number five, the gospel is good news about God's grace. God's grace. Paul wrote, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. It's about God's grace. A shorthand summary of the gospel might read like this. The gospel is the good news of God's grace given to his people in Jesus Christ. There's a timeless acrostic that I learned as a kid. Maybe some of you did as well. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. G-R-A-C-E. God's grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. It's good, isn't it? God's riches at Christ's expense. If you're brand new to Christianity, or maybe not a believer yet, just seeking out answers, I am glad you're here, but please understand this about Christianity. Every other belief system in the world stresses the importance of your efforts, your performance at trying to please God, and you'd better get on it, because God has lots of commands And if you want him to accept you and be happy with you and take you to heaven when you die, you better start performing. That's every other religion in the world. Did you know that? Every other belief system says it all rests on you, baby. (laughs) You better get cranking. Your performance is the key factor. They all teach a version of moralism, which says if I behave well, then God will accept me. God's approval of me is based on my obedience to him. But you need to know Christianity stands in stark contrast to that because Christianity is about grace. Christianity and grace teach that God's acceptance of me is not based on my performance for him because I could never perform to the level that he requires. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself every day of your life. Who does that? Honestly, who has lived that out? Not a single person. The bar is too high. Therefore, God had to step in in his sovereignty and solve the problem. He made provision for guilty sinners to be accepted by him. He did it. He offers it as a gift. I told you last week I'm going to say this a hundred times. So here's time number three. God's approval of me God's acceptance of me is not based on my performance for him, but on Jesus' performance for him on my behalf. That's truth. That's true truth. That's gospel truth. 
One of the guys in our small group this week said that whenever he gets the opportunity, he shares, he likes to share Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 with people to help them understand this. And I would point to those verses as well, especially those of you who have perhaps a Catholic background or have loved ones with that background. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Listen, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. By the way, that's the second gospel truth on this CD. If you've been playing through these, you'll recognize that. Grace means that our salvation is totally the work of God. We contribute nothing to our salvation other than to believe it and receive it and walk in it and live out of its reality. It's all grace. God planned it. He purchased it. Gospel is good news about God's grace. And so I need to ask, have you received the gift yet? Have you ever Receive this gift of grace that cost God everything to purchase for you. It's a gift, not of works. You can't earn it. You just say, thank you, Jesus. I believe in you. I turn from my sins. And I believe, Jesus, that your sacrifice covered me and paid for my sins. And I receive your gift of eternal life and righteousness that you offer me. And I receive it by faith. If you never have, today, The day is the day of salvation. Well, there's one final truth that emerges from this opening paragraph of Paul's letter to the Colossians. Verse 7, Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Truth number 6, Faithful ministers of Christ help people learn the gospel. This fellow, Epaphras, may have been the pastor of that congregation. We don't know that much about him. We do know that Paul regarded him highly. We know that Paul viewed him as a faithful minister. And do you know why Paul viewed him as a faithful minister? Because Epaphras taught his people the gospel of grace. He says, you learned it from this man, Epaphras. You see, faithful ministers help their people grow spiritually not by taking them beyond the gospel, but by taking them deeper into the gospel. That's how you grow, and that's what faithful ministers do. That's what I want to be to this congregation, a faithful minister taking us deeper into gospel truth, not graduating from it and leaving it behind. That's what our teaching team and our pastors want to be, faithful ministers. You know, the Bible tells us that in the last days, people will surround themselves with teachers who will tell them what their itching ears want to hear. I think we're living in those days. What all of us really need to stay aligned with the truth are gospel-soaked preachers and teachers and mentors and disciplers and small group leaders who will lead us deeper into the main message of the Bible. You know... I've had people say this to me. Doesn't the Bible talk about a lot of different things? Oh, yeah, it does. The Bible addresses many, many different things, but it is about one thing, the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus himself said. He said, it's about me. It's about me. And faithful ministers know that and lead the people they're shepherding and discipling into deeper awareness and understanding of Jesus and his work. 
I love the fact that here at New Life, our children's and student ministries are led by faithful ministers who seek to keep Jesus central in their teaching. I love that our small group leaders who minister and shepherd adults love to keep Jesus central in their shepherding and ministry. You ought to thank God for that, by the way. In fact, we're going to do that. We're going to do that right now. I want to recognize a few groups of people, and I'm going to ask you to stand and remain standing, okay? So if you teach in any capacity through this church, children or students, from wee little ones up through big tall ones like Noah, if you teach children, minister to children in any capacity, would you stand up? And they keep standing. Let's thank God for these folks. Stay standing, please. Stay standing. If you lead a small group and shepherd and minister to adults, would you stand also alongside these other folks? And if you have fans who... (laughs) Yeah. So stay standing for a minute. I don't often get to talk to like this this crew of people who are standing, so I want to say a couple things to you. Number one, I really appreciate you. I really do. Thank you so much for making yourself available to the Lord to be used by him in ministry. And and the second thing I want to say to you is never apologize and never be ashamed for keeping the gospel of Jesus front and center in your ministry to your people. Always do that. It's of first importance. Fruit will be born in the lives of the children and students and adults that you minister to as they receive the life that's in the seed of the gospel and understand it and believe it on deeper and deeper levels. So you're commissioned as gospel ministers to keep up that good work. And I praise God that he views you as faithful ministers as you do that. So let's thank these folks one more time. Amen. And everybody stand, would you? Just join these people. Let's all stand together. Jesus first. That's our emphasis. That's our desire. That's our hope. Our principle for this weekend is putting Jesus first involves continually learning and believing his gospel. And just before we respond in worship and in a time of prayer with our prayer partners, I would love for us to make a declaration together of our desire for Jesus to be first in our lives. So if this resonates in your heart, let's look up at the side screens and let's repeat this aloud together. Ready? Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is truly amazing. We believe that Jesus is your beloved son and that all of your fullness dwells in him. We believe that he came to us taking on human flesh. We believe that he lived the perfect life we could never live. We believe that he died as our substitute, taking our sin upon himself and shedding his blood as the purchase price for our salvation. And we believe that you raised him from the grave, showing your satisfaction with his sacrifice and demonstrating your power over sin and death. This is truly good news. May we receive the gospel by faith forever grateful for your grace. May we learn this gospel deeply, allowing its life, your life, to transform us. And may we share this gospel boldly 
spreading the good news everywhere we go. Produce in us the fruit of faith, hope, and love that our lives might reflect your life. May Jesus reign supreme in our hearts and become our most cherished treasure, our most passionate love, our preeminent Lord. Have your way in us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. 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 We're going to respond to the word this morning in worship. It's also an opportunity as we do to come and be prayed for. Our prayer partners are going to be uh, on the sides here. If you need clarity from the Lord regarding something in your life, come and be prayed with by one of our partners. If you need direction from God, if God's prompting you to request prayer for healing in your body, come and be prayed for. The Lord's revealed to you an area where Jesus is not first in your life. I would encourage you to come as well and just share that. Let let a prayer partner pray over you. So let's respond to the word of the Lord as we worship him together.